0: Today, we come to the last Sunday of the church calendar year, commonly known as the Feast of Christ the King. Always nice to end the year with a bang, isn't it? With a grand celebration. But I must admit that I have mixed feelings when it comes to this feast day. Because on the one hand, Christ the King Sunday is a relatively new addition to the church calendar. It was added a little less than 100 years ago. And that's, well, that's all right, but, but more bothersome still is how Christ the King Sunday actually breaks the flow of the Jesus story. Because as you know, there is a chronology to the church calendar, a chronology that moves us through the life of Christ. It begins in Advent as we long for Jesus to come and heal our world. Then with Christmas, we we celebrate his arrival in the incarnation, the Word made flesh. Then, after our Christmas trees come down on the day of Epiphany, we watch with eagerness as Jesus' ministry burst upon the scene with his baptism, his healing and miracles, his teachings. And it's all very exciting until Lent arrives as things begin to take a dark turn. Now we are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus up to Jerusalem where he is betrayed, suffers, and is crucified. Thankfully, though, our sadness is turned into joy on Easter morning, the biggest feast of the year, as we celebrate Jesus risen from the dead. And then, 40 days after Easter Sunday, that's the day when the church rightfully celebrates the kingship of Jesus. The day when he ascends into heaven and takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. It's called Ascension Day. It is His true coronation day, the true feast of Christ the King. So a big part of me doesn't want to create confusion here by marking it today. Because the sequence of the story matters. The timing of Jesus' coronation is critical to what happens next, Pentecost, as the Spirit gives birth to the church and empowers her to proclaim this new reality that God has made this crucified Jesus the king. We don't proclaim that one day at the end of our story Jesus will be made king, no. We announce that God has already done this. The gospel is not that one day Jesus will be Lord. The gospel is the proclamation of a present reality. Jesus is Lord. So there you go. Now you see well, I get so worked up about this. I appreciate you letting me get this off my chest. But even still, no, I don't think we should shut down today's festivities. Because yes, on the other hand... It's always a good time to celebrate the gospel, isn't it? I mean, whether during Advent, Christmas, Lent, or like today at the end of ordinary time, Jesus is King. Hallelujah. It's somewhat similar to how we say that every Sunday, you know, is a mini Easter. That no matter where we are in the church calendar, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday, even during Lent, because Easter is always a, a present reality. So perhaps. I should lighten up. It's always a good day to proclaim the kingship of Jesus. Just remember that today we're not celebrating a future hope, we're celebrating a present fact. Jesus is king. Perhaps then today should serve as a challenge to us to keep this reality always on the forefront of our hearts and minds. Just like when we hear the gospel read, we make the sign of the cross on our heads. On our lips and on our heart, the gospel needs to always be with us, not just on Ascension Day, not just on Christ the King Sunday, but on each and every day, Jesus is King. For this reality, the lordship of Jesus is meant to be the air that we breathe as followers of him. It's the truth that is meant to permeate every fiber of our being. And it's a truth that we dare not relegate or even domesticate no each and every day we must come face to face when we get out of bed we must come face to face with just how radical this claim is how crazy it is that jesus is king he is the christ now remember remember that christ is not jesus's last name it's not even a name it's the Greek word for the Hebrew term Messiah. It, it, it's a Jewish title that literally means anointed one. And it's applied to the promised king of Israel. And so you will do just fine to substitute the word king every time you come to the word Christ as you read through scripture. Jesus the Christ means Jesus the king, Israel's promised Messiah. Messiah. You heard our Old Testament reading for today. The days are surely coming, says the Lord in Jeremiah 23, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and execute justice throughout the land. This is one of hundreds of references in the Hebrew Scriptures to Israel's ultimate hope that one day God would... Set his king upon his holy hill in Zion, as Psalm 2 puts it. And that all the nations would become his inheritance. That is, Israel's king, the Messiah, would ultimately rule the entire world. And this hope, this, uh, this promise is what carries Israel along century after century through its topsy-turvy history. So much so that, that even in Israel's darkest hour, you know, when the, when the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is sacked, the people are, are either killed, scattered, or deported. Even then, the Jews held out this one hope that somehow, despite their unfaithfulness, God would still be faithful to the covenant that he made with them and raise up a king, a Messiah, restoring their nation, restoring Jerusalem and even the temple itself. And it appears that there were at least two non-negotiables to this hope. Two unassailable assumptions baked into their messianic expectations. First, that the promised Messiah, like David, would be a a warrior king. That he would lead a, a violent uprising against their enemies, calling his followers to, you know, pick up your sword so that we can take back our freedom. And second, that the Messiah wouldn't die in the fight. (laughs) I mean, duh, right? Not only would he lead the Jewish people to victory, but after the war, he would then take his rightful place on Israel's throne, and he would rule from Jerusalem as their king. But the craziness of the Christian claim is that Jesus did neither of these, and yet we still proclaim him. As the Christ. This is the scandal that the Apostle Paul writes about. The scandal of proclaiming Christ crucified. You know, the king killed is the message. It's a stumbling block for Jews, it's foolishness to Gentiles. It is a crazy claim. Did you know that there were around 14 other messianic movements, 200 years on either side of Jesus' life? And all of them went something like this. A charismatic leader gains a following, some even claim to do miracles, and as the movement picks up steam, the leader rallies his followers to take up arms against their Roman overlords so that they might gain their national independence. But in each and every case, the messianic leader eventually gets killed, and the movement comes to a halt. Or perhaps another leader is recruited, and they try, try again, only to fail time and time again. But what never happens is this. Never do people claim that the dead Messiah is now alive so as to try to keep this thing going. This wouldn't make any sense back then. One of the most interesting examples of this occurs in the early 130s, after the life of Jesus, a movement led by a Jewish military leader named Simon Bar Kokhba, that is Simon, son of the star. What's noteworthy about this movement is that Bar Kokhba not only claimed to be the Messiah, but he was actually able to reign from Jerusalem for almost three years, issuing new coins, ordering his generals, starting the calendar over. Why? Why? Because a new age had dawned, the kingdom of God had finally arrived with his reign. But of course, as history goes, Bar too is eventually killed. The uprising is squashed and the movement dies with him. You see, that's the Messiah mindset back then. If the leader dies, the movement is over. Unless they can find another leader and then they hail him as the new Messiah and the cycle starts all over again. We don't think about this, but the early church in Jerusalem did have another leader. That would be Jesus' brother, James, right? But never once did they consider making James the new Messiah. Though how easy that would have been in light of Jesus' death, right? To say, you know, we love Jesus. He was great, but they killed him, and now we have his brother, who is such, by the way, a great man of prayer, a fine teacher. He's respected by all. He must be the one. He is our new Messiah. But no one ever said that. Instead, they continued to hail the crucified Jesus as the Christ. Such a crazy thing to do. And yet there's still more. Not only did they claim Christ Christ, crucified, this new messianic movement also never once picked up a sword. Even when they were being persecuted, retaliation was never an option. Truly a crazy way to keep a kingdom of God movement going. I want you to think about that. A messianic movement that forges ahead not by the love of power, but by the power of love. Not by the force of arms, but by, but by the kind of witness that we see in the book of Acts through, through prayer and healing and deep community, sacrificial loves, suffering even, and sometimes martyrdom. You see, that's how the kingdom of God advances under the crucified king. It makes you wonder if this is what the disciples were asking about at the very beginning of Acts. I don't know if you remember this. Right before Jesus ascends into heaven, remember that they asked him, Jesus, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, is it time now to start picking up swords? Is it time for us to to flex our military muscles? No, Jesus says. You wait here and you will receive power from the Holy Spirit so that your lives will bear witness to a crucified Messiah. This is a crazy movement. And my friends, we are heirs of this craziness. We are a part of a movement that doesn't move forward by force, but by self-sacrificial love. Our symbol is never a symbol of power like a sword, a tank. It's always a symbol of defeat, It's always the symbol of the cross. Our charter as followers of Jesus is not a declaration of independence. It's our reading today from Luke 23. That horrific account of our broken and bloodied king hanging on a cross, saying of his Roman overlords, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. The religious leaders hear this, and and they scoff at Jesus and say, if he is king, if he is the Messiah, let him save himself. The soldiers follow suit, mocking Jesus, and they say almost the same thing, except it's right to Jesus. If you, Jesus, are the king, save yourself. One of the criminals, even hanging next to Jesus, derides him and says, are you not the king? Save yourself. No one understands because this is a different kind of king. He's not out to save himself. He's out to save others. He's out to save the religious leaders and soldiers and criminals. He's out to save the lost, the rich and the rebellious. He's out to save you. He's out to save me. And right in the middle of this crazy scene, right in the middle of this dreadful passage is the claim that stands at the heart of our faith, the gospel itself written on an inscription above the head of Jesus. This is the king of the Jews. This crucified Jesus is our King. My friends, this is a crazy claim, but if it's true, then it's a claim that must be matched by the craziness of our lives, matched by our upside-down priorities, our willingness to save others instead of ourselves. It must be matched by our, our, our self-sacrificial love, our outlandish generosity. The craziness of our claim, Jesus is king, if it's true, must be matched by the craziness of our lives. There's a story in the book of Acts that illustrates this well, I think. It's when Paul and Silas come to the, to the city of Thess- Thessalonica, the headquarters uh, uh, for the Roman governor in that area. And as was their custom, they go to the synagogue and they do their best to proclaim this crazy message, right? They go to the other Jews and they say, the crucified Jesus, he's the one that is our hoped-for Messiah. Of course, many of the Jews didn't take well to this message because, yes, it sounds so scandalous, so foolish. So what do they do? They form a mob and set the city in an uproar. Christians were dragged before the civil authorities as they shouted out their accusation saying, these people have been turning the world upside down. They are acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor saying that there is another king named Jesus. A crazy claim matched by their crazy lives. My goodness, might that be said of us? These people here at All Saints, they are turning the world upside down. They don't do what everybody else does. They don't live like everybody else. Their priorities in life are out of whack. It's as if they took this King Jesus stuff seriously. My friends, this is the point of Christ the King Sunday. Not only to realize how crazy our claim is that Jesus is king but to act upon this claim as well. To match the craziness of our lives with the craziness of our claim. Not that our lives should be crazy for the sake of being crazy. That's not what I'm saying. But crazy because our lives should be so at odds with this world. So at odds with the world's lust for power. So at odds with with how people typically engage in political discourse. So at odds with a culture marked by competition, a culture marked by anxiety. Our lives should be so at odds with the world's restless pursuit of wealth and pleasure. Might that be said of us today? Might that be said of you? Are those around you taken aback by the tenor of your life, by how otherworldly it is? Is Christ the king just a claim to you, a day on the church calendar? Or is it the air you breathe? Does it permeate every fiber of your being? You see, the Christian movement is still, to this day, a messianic movement. It's just marked by a different kind of king. Which means our lives should be marked by a different kind of kingdom. And so, we pray, may the radical reign of this king... The reign of the crucified Christ become ever more evident in our lives together, we pray. In his name, amen.